Good evening. You're all very welcome. My name is Kevin Rafter. I'm the Chair of the Arts Council, and I'm very pleased to welcome you here for what is a very special occasion this evening. It's been a roller coaster these last few years, but it is wonderful to be able to be here in person this evening. And tonight, we get to hear from our new Laureate for Irish Fiction, our third Laureate after Anne Enright and Sebastian Barry. This year alone, my own exposure to Cullum's work has included a performance of The Blackwater Lightship, the play of his fourth novel, being in Wexford recently to see The Master, an opera based on the novel of the same name, and adding to my reading list two very fine books on Vinegar Hill, his first collection of poetry, and The Guest at the Feast, a new essay collection which arrived in the post from my local bookstore only last Friday morning. Uh, and I was at home um, when I returned home. The book was there after what had been a very lovely morning at Orison when President Higgins presented Cullum with his medal as our new laureate for Irish fiction. Cullum's generosity and his work ethic are already evident in the early months uh, of his term as laureate. As part of his public programme, he is hosting a monthly book club in libraries all across the country. And I had the good fortune to attend the book club event in Ballymun Library last September. And what still sticks in my mind was the queue afterwards, with people looking to get copies of their books signed by the author, and Cullum Tobin standing patiently, taking his time with each person. He'll also be working during his term as laureate with third level students, and tonight he delivers his first laureate lecture along with some very special musicians. The Arts Council's current strategy has two core objectives, the role of the artist and public engagement with the arts. And the Council is committed to the individual writer and recognises their central role in artistic life. The Laureate for Fiction along with Laureate Nanogue, the Children's Laureate, and the Ireland Chair of Poetry all honour outstanding Irish writers, and Cullum Tabin is one of those and much more besides. In the current edition of the New Yorker magazine, there's an article about Bob Dylan's long-time creativity. He's in his 80s. How does he keep it fresh? The article's headline asks. Um, while a long way from that vintage, the same question could be asked of Cullum Tabin. An outstanding journalist turned writer of international rank, novelist, short story writer, poet, playwright, critic, essayist. We are very, very fortunate as an audience. I think we're very privileged to be able to experience and to enjoy the work of such an artist. And tonight it gives me great privilege on behalf of the Arts Council that to be here and for you to be here with us to hear Cullum's first laureate for Irish fiction lecture, Ships in Full Sail, A Life in Music. Oh, 
The first time I heard serious singing was well after hours in Peter Hayes' pub in Court Street in Enniscorthy. It was 1967. I was 12 years old. Flacciol had come to Enniscorthy. Halls and public spaces all over the town had been reserved for the many competitions in all areas of Irish traditional music. The town was ready. Food, accommodation, parking facilities, toilets, everything was in place. But something was going on that week that no one had prepared for. On the Friday of the June long weekend, huge numbers of people with scruffy clothes and long hair began to arrive in Enniscorthy. They did not look like the sort of people who wanted to take part in any sort of competition. The men wore jeans, and what shocked people more than anything, the women wore jeans too. <laughs> 
a neighbor said that for the whole weekend he walked through his own town, he could not tell the difference between the men <laughs> and the women. They, they all had long hair, they all wore trousers, they all walked around as though they didn't care about anything. Other neighbors nodded gravely as though nature had been disturbed at its very source. All that weekend, the long-haired strangers camped on the bare meadow. The meadow beside the Slaney River was really bare that weekend, our neighbours said, as people on the road above could look down and see those people, men and women, cavorting naked on the grass. In their bare skin, he said, it was a disgrace. As Friday moved into Saturday, it became clear that these many visitors had no tents, nowhere to sleep, so an appeal went out to the townspeople to open their houses to these visitors. Property owners in the town had seen this new generation on television, but they never expected to see them in the flesh, in a lot of flesh on the bare meadow, and, and they certainly didn't want them in their houses. Their main interest that Saturday was to stop the town's young people from being contaminated with this free-for-all. So it was announced that all children in our street were banned from going downtown. The black hole was going to happen in our absence. That evening at about seven o'clock, I had an idea. My father was in the Castle Museum, and I could tell my mother and all adults who stopped me that I was going to the museum to help him on his express instructions. It was a lie, and it worked. And when I arrived in the museum, my father realized that he could not send me home unaccompanied. When the museum closed, I walked through the town with him, streets that were normally quiet and dull, streets where nothing happened day after day. These streets were now alive as we walked through them with drunken groups linking arms and pushing their way through, yelping and shouting on corners. Lone singers roared out, her eyes, they shone like diamonds, and they were accompanied by banjo or guitar, and there was a huge crowd outside Billy Stamp's public house in the Market Square. Some People were sitting on the ground. They all had bottles or glasses and they were all laughing and talking in a way which was new to me. There was nothing cautious or watchful about them and a few couples were kissing passionately. Some of the men had big beards as well as long hair. My father knew and I knew that he should have taken me home, but I also knew he didn't want to. Both of us were too excited to go home. An Escorthy was being transformed from a small provincial town into a centre of depravity, hilarity and loose living. My father took me to Peter Hayes's pub. <laughs> we stayed there until the early hours. I was fed bottles of fizzy orange while my father and various friends of his drank pints of Guinness and watched the comings and goings of this brave new world, young men and women in a massive state of abandon. When one of these outsiders sang, they threw their heads back. They sang as though the world depended on it. A few times that night, in Peter Hayes's pub in Court Street in Enniscorthy, I witnessed an awed silence as one of the visitors sang or played. They were wild and strange. And slowly, as the night wore on, my father and his friends began to get used to them. I remember before we left, a woman with long hair came in selling pig's feet. And years later... When I would tell people that I was from in Escorthy, they would often laugh and say that they had the time of their lives in that town during Flakyol and Heron of 1967. It was the summer of love. It is hard to explain how precious LPs were in the late 1960s and early 1970s, how few LPs we could afford and how many of us wore the vinyl out listening to the same songs over and over. This meant that the arrival of a new album in the house was an occasion. 
In the Christmas holidays of 1971, with money I had saved, I bought Leonard Cohen's album Songs from a Room, which had first appeared two years earlier, and my sister brought home from Dublin an album called Scarabray. I did not ever mix up the two, by the way. You know, how great it would be to tell you now that it seems so long ago Nancy was alone, a 45 beside her head, an open telephone. It's jumbled in my memory with Kadeshin Donteshin, but it isn't, it really isn't, isn't. I suppose that what led me to spend time intensely with both albums was that the voice came pure and direct. The harmonies on the Scarabray album were not sets of tricks or done to bamboozle or impress. They came direct from the spirit of the singers rather than through the intervention of a sound engineer. It can happen in writing, even in the most formal poetry, that the reader starts to feel that the next sentence, the next line, the rhyme, are not predetermined. They're not known about before they're set down. They don't come as accident, however, nor do they come as a kind of gift, nor are they fully spontaneous, but they are a result of a game with chance. They have a rawness, the excitement of something that might not have happened. This is what I found on these albums, moments when Michal O'Donnell's voice turns on a note or goes into a higher register or seems concerned not to let the emotion in the song ever exceed its cause. It isn't that he throws a line away, but he refuses to spell out the feeling in a song. He moves with subtlety and by implication. He's testing the song as he sings it. Trina and Maraid, in a song called Bonkenich Erano, are careful not to make the harmonies seem prearranged or slick in any way. You never know what one or the other is going to do with the next line or the next note. But nonetheless, the harmony is sustained. At times, it is soaring and perfect. When all three voices join and move away and join, you hear some musical intelligence at work. You hear tact. But what matters, or what mattered to me in that winter, is the way the singers are still discovering what the song can do. You're listening as something happens. In October 1972, when I went to UCD for the first time, I wrote letters home, sometimes very personal ones about things that happened in the city. Recently, I was brave enough to go through them. I found this from the spring of 1974. Dear Mother, recently I met someone who was having trouble, a lot of trouble with her boyfriend. People say that I have a persecution complex, she said in a fit of rage about this boyfriend, a citizen of a place called Renla. Um, but I only have the persecution complex because he, this little squirt, is persecuting me. I don't feel persecuted exactly, but I often feel that people in Dublin are laughing at me. I feel it because it is true. I don't think they have selected people from Enniscorthy to laugh at in any special way, but it often seems like that. Mother, I wish I could stop making an idiot of myself in Dublin. I could give you several examples, but I do need to post this letter soon. The one that most darkens my mind occurred last Friday night, somewhere in that vast, ungainly suburb that goes from Sandy Mount to Dorky. I got brought to a party. I would have been happy just to sit there and drink, but... In the room were two members of that group whose record I played all Christmas. No, not the suicide merchant from Canada. Uh, the doleful fellow with the monotonous voice. No, 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 the singers in Irish, the ones from Donegal. Two of them, the brother and the older sister, were, were, were actually in the room at the party. The brother took one look at me and obviously thought I was a Dublin person. I mean, you can't win here. Dublin people think you're from Enniscorthy and marked thus with an unusually dense form of goofiness. And Dub Donegal people think you're from Dublin. I decided to approach the sister, Trina, to inform her in breathless tones how much I admired her. 
To be fair to myself, I would have done the same had it been Leonard Cohen. She nodded as best she could. I mean, she was very polite. Then she, I should have quietly moved away. Instead, even more breathlessly, I informed her that I so especially admired the Colleen Rua and Colleen Rua by Scarabray that I really, really wanted her, Trina, to sing it now, here. She looked at me like I was mad. Imagine meeting Leonard Cohen at a party and asking him there and then to intone, hey, that's no way to say goodbye. <laughs> it was the end of me. I crawled home. I'm studying hard for my exams. I'm going nowhere, your loving son. <laughs> it, took me, it took me years to work out the rules and reticences, the hierarchies, both open and hidden, within this world of Irish singing and Irish traditional music, the sense of tact required and intuition and knowledge of the company, and knowing the right time to ask Trina, am I ready to sing? In Cross Midlen and Cullihanna and Fork Hill and in all the villages of that part of South Armagh, people were watchful, careful. It was 1986, and this was a territory often portrayed as bandit country. There was, we were told, a war going on between the British Army and the IRA. And sometimes you saw signs of that in graffiti, in the army helicopters coming and going, in the checkpoints and the army presence in the square in Cross Midlen. But most of the time it was quiet. It had the calmness of any country area in Ireland, so you were never sure whether the term bandit country was deceptive or whether the calm was deceptive. In the end, I discovered that maybe everything was deceptive. That September, in Fork Hill, there was a singing festival. And that too could be deceptive if you arrived thinking that I would tell you something about Republican politics in South Armagh. The singing festival in Fork Hill was about singing, and the songs were about love and landscape, memory and loss. People were interested in the quality of the voices, grace notes and flourishes, a verse added or left out, the other versions of a song. And that night I heard something that is with me still in all its glory and that I will never forget. I heard Myra Edney voice in recording. I had heard it in recordings, but now, out of the blue, in a pub in Fork Hill that Saturday night, she sang Roisin, she sang Roisin Dove. There was no big announcement, no one breathless asking her to sing. It just started and everything stopped. The cash register didn't make a sound. There wasn't the slightest whisper. Her voice has astonishing power and control and there's a range of feeling and expression and sweetness in how she sang that took our breath away that night. She paid attention to the melody the actual contours of the song, but there, then it seemed at the end of a line or at a chosen moment, she would surprise herself, do something with her voice that placed a current of cadence above or below the cadence of the song. And when she had finished, she smiled and put her head down and turned away. She must have known, as everyone in the company knew, that nothing as good as this would ever happen for a long time. Sure. 
سفر رنجو او برای از اقشک سهی جو سیگاه را There were other days when the music lifted the spirits in ways which were unexpected. There's one day in Galway during the Arts Festival in the early 1990s when I met Maureen Hughes on the street and she told me that whatever I did, I was not to miss a lunchtime concert in the Druid Theatre at lunchtime. 
Sorry, I know lunchtime concert in the Druid Theatre. Why did I write that twice? Um, when I arrived, I found that it would just be two fiddlers from the Tuller Cayley Band. The men were in their 60s. They were dressed in suits and collars and ties. Their bearing was formal and sober. They sat and they played for us and the playing was beautiful. And the end of each line was like, it was like a line of a poem or, or it was like the wave of a sea. It was the next line with its repetition, variation, that peculiar aura of inevitability and acceptance in this music, even when it is fast moving and good humored. And halfway through the concert in Druid, two more players came on whom I later learned were the fiddler Martin Hayes and a man called Dennis Cahill on guitar. And as the four men began to play, I realized from one of the introductions that one of the men in suits was Martin Hayes' father. Martin Hayes had long hair and like his companion was dressed casually. This might have been a site of some conflict, not only sartorial, but between generations and musical tastes. Instead, it was a picture of pure harmony and sweetness. The older men's style was perhaps, you could call it serious, straightforward, and Martin Hayes' was emphasizing the gorgeousness, the lift of the music, and he was letting it soar, but then he too could become rigid and technical as the older men when he wanted to be. We watched them then, utterly content, making way for each other, suddenly coming back together, smiling and letting the music lift for us. It was pure delight. Letter I wrote home in the um, summer of 1986. <laughs> Dear mother, thank you for your postal order. It has been gratefully received. I needed it badly because I spent all my money in the big Aran Island last weekend. As soon as I walked up from the pier from the boat from Rossville, I saw a man I know sitting in the porch of the bar. He is called Brown Don O'Hare. And he is from the island and he wrote a very funny novel called Ligxingi Gahu about a fellow called Martin Melody wandering around Galway being disrespectful to his elders. He once told me that when he was growing up on Inishmore, a group of doctors and sociologists intent on finding a rare and remote society on the islands came to take blood samples and measure the size of the school children's heads. <laughs> Brandon loved the fact that the islanders' blood group pattern turned out to be similar to that of Northern England, where people of Gaelic and Saxon origin had also, he said, intermingled. Mother, he was on the island to make a documentary for RTE television, working with Moorish Mokanil, the man who made that documentary we all liked on the Blasket Islands. And they were having a kind of standoff, not, not a row or anything like that, but a dispute arising from ideological differences. Brown Dawn pointed down to the pier where the last boat from Rossabeel was still to come. The documentary maker, he said, wanted to film all the young island fellows looking strong and soulful, staring out to sea. Some people, Brown Dawn said, think that this is what young men on islands do. But most of these fellows down there, he said, have lived in Boston. They're standing there because it is generally agreed that the nicest American girls come to Inishmore on the last boat. And he added, these island men all have condoms in their pockets. Why doesn't he make a film about that, Brandon growled. There was so much laughter and controversy, Mother, that I forgot to check into my B&B, &B, and this caused much trouble later on that I will not worry you about. The director wants the islanders to sing in Irish, Brandon went on, because that is what islanders should do. But a lot of singers on the big island sing in English. If he wants singing in Irish, he should go to the two other islands. In the morning, peace had not broken out. 
Brown Dawn had suggested that the filmmaker, in search of primitive communality, get RTE to pay for the entire clearing of the Big Island, of its people, men, women, and children, and then he could film barrenness, beauty, emptiness, gannets, and the sadness and soulfulness of the west of Ireland. The wind could sing in Irish, and the waves could tell ancient, timeless stories. I moved around the Ireland carefully until I bumped into Murish Mocanil himself, who, it being an island, knew that I had sat in the porch of the pub the night before with his colleague, Brown Dawn O'Hare, and then had arrived at several houses insisting in leaving cert Irish grade C in the honours paper that this was my bed and breakfast. <laughs> the islanders didn't like his camera Murish said they were not cooperating. He wore an air of steely determination as he told me that he intended to point his camera at the doors of certain houses whose owners were being especially recalcitrant, and he was going to keep the camera there until the people came out. They would have to come out at some point and then film them he would. There was no singing much on the island, mother. I think I picked the wrong weekend. Your loving, hardworking son. In the 50 years since I came to Dublin, the city has changed so much that things that have been untouched by time, such as Hartigan's Pub in Leeson Street, or the re-reading room of the National Library seem all the more remarkable. These include a man, I think he is called a verger, who works at St. Anne's Church in Dawson Street. He has not changed. I see him on the street sometimes, and I put his unchanged condition down to the power of Protestant prayer. I noticed him first when I began to go to performances of the Bach cantatas in St. Anne's on Sunday afternoons. In the 1970s, these were conducted by John Beckett, a cousin of Samuel Beckett's, who began by offering introductions that were both laconic and informative, and John Beckett's style of conducting was unobtrusive and eccentrically minimalist. These were the days before the creation of the National Concert Hall in Dublin. Big crowds would go to the Gaiety Theatre for the Sunday night concert, and then smaller select groups would assemble at the RDS on Monday night for the weekly chamber music concert, and then at St. Anne's on Sunday afternoons for the cantatas. These last two groups, St. RDS, St. Anne's, belong to a class who have been disappearing in Dublin since the time of Queen Victoria's reign began. An outsider might be inclined to believe that this was Protestant Dublin amusing itself, but it might be closer to the truth to state that this was Monkstown and the places around it, dressed in faded tweeds, reading the Irish Times, listening to the BBC Home Service, and to be found shopping in Smiths of the Green. If a nation is, as Leopold Bloom declares in Ulysses, the same people in the same place, then these people were a nation. Being at those concerts never felt exclusive. It often felt lonely, as if we were all haunted by the average age of ourselves, the audience, which was high, and the attendance, which was low, and the idea that there might soon come a time when no one would much listen to Bach cantatas. If the concerts were larger and included one of the Bach passions, then, if we were lucky, the alto role would be sung by Bernadette Grevy. She was, at that time, the most famous Irish classical singer. She looked the part, tall, good-looking, dark eyes, dark hair, perfectly groomed, imposing, coming out on the stage with a natural sense of grandeur. Grevy was too dignified, in a way, to be an actress. It was believed that she was not suited to the great opera roles on stage. She never became a great opera singer. Instead, she, began, she became a great performer in religious music and in oratorio and in song cycles, especially the work of Mahler. On one Sunday night, it must have been 1979, 1980, 
The concert at the Gaiety was to end with Bernard Grevy singing the contralto part in Gustav Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde, The Song of the Earth. I had a seat in one of the boxes just above the stage. At the end of the last song in the cycle, it is her task to sing the same word, the German word ewig, meaning eternal or eternally, over and over. Sometimes on various recordings, this can sound what it is. It's repetitive, as if the singer just couldn't stop. And some of the orchestration around it can sound too elaborate and textured with too much ornamentation. That night, Grievy managed the emotion in the song with exquisite care, so that the feeling came in shades with complexity, and then on a single note, all pure and stark. She was living the song, but the problem would always be for every singer what to do with the end, with the avi. It had to be repeated again and again. I often wondered if she knew what she achieved that night, how she'd carried the listeners with her and how easy it would be to lose us now. Each time she sang the word Avi, she had to give it a different emphasis. Grievy didn't just make it sound as though the repeat was there to hold back the end of the song, postpone it. She made the word sound as though its meaning shifted every time she said it, an eternity that she recognised an eternity that was implacably there, an eternity that she accepted, an eternity that she was reaching towards. More than 40 years later, I can still feel the thrill of that sound, the richness of her voice, the amount of careful, tactful thought she had put into each note, and then the thing you cannot teach or be trained in, the element that comes from the deepest reaches of the self, what in Spanish is called duende, the quality of passion and inspiration, what cannot be named, but what can be communicated, perhaps only on rare occasions, can be felt and can be remembered.
Father O'Reilly was waiting for me when the bus stopped in Ballyvourney. It was the spring of 1986. Anyone would know you, he said. You have a look of Dublin off you. <laughs> By the time I could tell him that I was not from... Father was walking ahead of me to the car. He took me to the family house, and he let me spend time in his father's study, which was more or less untouched 15 years after Sean O'Reilly's death. Sean O'Reilly's books were all there as he left them, Science fiction, French novels and paperback, teach yourself German, books on fishing and shooting, 
Irish language books and two books by Arnold Schoenberg, Preliminary Exercises in Counterpoint and Structural Functions in Harmony. O'Reilly had written his MA thesis on Schoenberg in 1952, and Schoenberg would remain a haunting presence in O'Reilly's brief career as a classical composer. As Sean O'Reilly was growing up, the crossroads dances and the house dances were dying out in Ireland. De Valera's Public Dance Hall's Acts of 1935 made it necessary to have a license to hold a dance. His intention was to curb dances held in houses or crossroads to make public entertainment amenable to supervision, particularly by the clergy. The boom then in the building of rural dance halls began and music became big business and a way into politics. Irish dance music and dancing continued to decline. A writer in the furrow in 1953 said of the act, it completely destroyed the informal dances in private houses. The rigid enforcement of the new act by the Gardaí put an abrupt end to that sort of entertainment. In 1962, Sean moved to Coulee in West Cork with his family. Over the last few years of his life, he died in 1971 at the age of 40. He had in mind a new synthesis, a way of taking Irish music and the European art tradition closer to each other. And he found, found a choir, as we know, in Coulee and wrote a mass for the choir to perform. I didn't need to keep a diary of those days that I spent in that house as Pather's guest. In the pub that he and his friends favoured, which was the highest pub in Ireland, Pather issued instructions that this man from Dublin was not allowed to buy a drink. By the time I could explain that I was not, you know, Pather had moved into some other topic. Eventually, late in the night, he gave me permission to buy a round. I felt lucky that Early in my life, I had made a rule, a rule that has saved me from calamity to this day. The rule is no puking, no fading. In West Cork, in those days, it stru I stuck to these principles as fast as I could. It was, it was hard. Later, during the Orea the Weekend, which took place in the National Concert Hall, produced by Noel Pearson, I watched other rules at work, other principles. Noel Pearson had handed over Joy's Nightclub, a den of iniquity in Baggett Street, on that Sunday night, to the Oriadas and their friends. As the singing started, a well-known professor of history began a song and I noticed an unease. No one in that company actually invited anyone to sing. Each song began as though spontaneously, but nothing was spontaneous. This was a kind of ritual. Everyone knew whose turn was next, what voice should rise and when. And once the professor's song was over, someone whispered to me what had occurred. He has sung Rachel's song, I was told. Some singers are known for a song, a single song, and it is understood that no one while in their company should sing that song. And that had just happened, and it seemed like a breach of decorum, and decorum mattered, especially in this world. It was a great place to learn manners. And speaking of manners, in Coulee that Sunday morning at around nine o'clock, Padre O'Reilly knocked on the door of my room and told me in no uncertain terms to get up for mass. We had been up late because Pather had made the kitchen into a kind of recording studio, placing microphones in strategic places so that they could pick up what might sound like a house dance or a party with Brandon or Baglig on the accordion as the main player. The idea was to make it sound natural. By the time we went to bed, everyone had long forgotten that it was actually being recorded and some of us might have sounded more natural than was entirely appropriate. <laughs> I watched the Coulee Choir sing the Aurea the Mass that morning, and there must have been lunch somewhere or another gathering. And what I remember most clearly is a moment when the afternoon light began to wane, and all weekend there had been one among us who did not stand out in any obvious way. He was quiet-spoken, 
He was in his early 20s, but he could have been younger. Early in my time there, someone told me that he had the voice. His name was Earl Lenoir. That Sunday afternoon in West Cork, I saw him setting out on foot for home. He was alone. I watched him walking away from all the fun, and even the mass in its own way had been fun. A voice like his could be a burden, I supposed. Of course, it could be a gift. It all depended on you. I remember the singer's name, and when I met him in Dublin later at the Aurea weekend, I noticed how moved he was by the singing of Dorico Cahoin. I wondered what this young fellow's life was going to be like, if his voice might matter to us maybe as it should. This is now almost 40 years ago as well, and like many others, I have been following him ever since. Hennile kardel 
I would like to thank Irlo Lenard for coming here and for Trina and Mairead Nigong. And also we're going to have later the members of the Contemporary Quartet with members of the Van Brugge Quartet. I would also like to thank, thank Audrey Keane from the Arts Council and Kevin Rafter and Sarah Bannon, everyone from the Arts Council, and from, also from the Town Hall Theatre, and also Dark McEnomara who produced this production, this show. And also, um, today is the birthday of my friend Katrina Crow, who's in the audience over there. And I'd like to wish her a happy birthday. In the summer of 1983, when I traveled by boat to Tory Island, I found a lovely anarchy there. The 10 miles from the mainland and the unpredictable northern weather and the barrenness of the soil meant that there were no guardie, no tax collectors, no strict timekeeping, and there was no work much to do. There was a great deal of singing and staying up late and drinking. It is what I suppose heaven might be like. The only regulations on the island, however, came from the church in the, pres in the person of the parish priest. And hero that he was, he was making one last desperate effort to save the island. <laughs> Nothing which the priest did or said, however, succeeded in making the islanders follow mainland hours. One night when the dancing and singing had gone on until four in the morning, I mean, about two, a big cartload of islanders, men, women, children, and dogs arrived just to add spice to the party that was going on. Um, I found that one slow, melancholy song from relatively early in the evening had lodged in my mind. The song was called Sean Bon McGraw. And throughout the next day, snatches of it would come into my mind and I decided to go in search of the woman who sang it and who told me in turn where I could find the man who had taught it to her. His name was Jimmy Duggan, or Seamus O'Dogoyne, and he lived in the East Town. He lived all his life on the island. He had a way of using a sort of indirect glance, followed by withdrawal of focus, followed by the dimmest gaze into the distance, as a way of making his point rather than a word. He considered everything carefully. When he spoke, there was an undertone of irony and wit. I still belonged at that time to a school of journalism which thought really that the more stupid the question you asked, the more likely you were to be told something you didn't know. And so I asked him how many songs he knew. <laughs> and we were speaking in English and he, he um, an infinite number, he said, maybe. And then he thought for a while and said, maybe you could count them, but, but you'd need time. <laughs> and then another question, stupid, oh, uh, what was the best thing that has happened on the island in recent years? I asked. <laughs> he thought for a while, and then he briskly told me, the, the new television English channel, Channel 4, he said, that has very good films late at night. That's the best thing that has happened on this island for a long time. <laughs> the islanders, thank God, he said, get great reception. 
I, I had no idea, really none, that whether he was mocking me or not. <laughs> he did not know, he said, where he had learned the song Sean Bon McGraw, but he knew that once when he had forgotten a verse, it was provided by his mother-in-law. On the island, he said, it was a tradition that before a wedding, the people would gather with the bride and groom, and each person would sing a song. And this particular song was both a lament and a love song, to be sung by a young woman who was pregnant by the groom, who would come to the party in disguise. The song was the song of her plight, he said, verse after verse of what would happen to her now that her lover was marrying another woman. But also, of course, she knew that if she sang it well enough, her lover might change his mind. Everything depended on how she sang the song. It was one song, he said, that could not be sung badly because there was still hope. Seamus Odegaard lifted his chin as he said this and captured me briefly with his gaze and smiled faintly, almost sadly to himself. In Lillis O'Leary's magisterial book on a rock in the middle of the ocean, Songs and Singers in Tory Island, which is beautifully published by Miholo Canila and Chloe Irconachta, Lillis describes visiting that very house a few years after I did. But this time he asked Seamus O'Dugan's 95-year-old mother-in-law, Hannah, to sing the song, Sean Bon McGraw. Her voice had never before been recorded. In the recording, which is a CD at the back of the book, she makes some mistakes and she can't remember some lines. And when Lillis O'Leary records O'Dugan himself, then he can compare the two versions and note that Hannah, when she asked for assistance with the song, she spoke thus, where is the other verse now, Jimmy? It is, O'Leary writes, almost as if the missing verse were actually stored in a particular place in which he might actually find it. In the mid-1970s, I used to go to the Stag's Head, which is hidden behind Dame Street sometimes, on a Saturday morning to read the papers. One Saturday morning in the spring of 1975, I found myself sitting close to an old man who was small and wizened, with skin like parchment and lines deeply etched into his forehead. He was wearing poor clothes. There was an air of hunger about him, not only of the body, but maybe of the soul. He, he studied me in disapproving fits and starts before he moved closer. I had a book with me and he asked me about the book. And at first, I, I, I thought he was slightly mad or drunk. And as he began to talk, I realized that he could not hear very well. I also discovered that he knew a great deal about books and he made a few sour and pointed remarks about writers. And for a second, he could have been a figure out of Flann O'Brien or even out of Ulysses. His eyes took me in fiercely. He asked me to buy him a drink, but nothing more than a glass of Guinness. At some point, and he inquired if I'd ever managed to get a copy of John McGahern's The Dark. I said I had one in my flat. He tensed to listen. Slowly I realised that he believed the book was still banned. It had been banned on publication ten years earlier. I told him the ban was lifted and the book was in paperback in every bookshop. He expressed great surprise once he understood, and the expression on his face became almost tender. He said he would love to read the book. Could, could I get him a copy? There was something he said he could give me in return. He asked me where I lived. He would, he would like to deliver it to me, he said. By this time, I was uncomfortable with the intensity of his tone and wondered how I had so quickly and easily got myself into a position where I might have to meet him again or have him called to the flat. Nonetheless, he was oddly funny and sharp-witted and I was interested in his strange bursts of enthusiasm and warmth and immense interest in things. I told him I would see him in the pub at the same time the following week and would bring him a copy of The Dark. He expressed satisfaction at this. He did not want another drink. He said he had to go. 
I noticed as he left how small and frail and shabby he was. I have just looked him up in the dictionary of Irish biography. His name is Frederick May. He was in his mid-60s then when I met him that day. He had another decade to live. He studied musical composition with Vaughan Williams in London and later studied in Vienna. He's described in the dictionary as the least insular Irish composer of his generation. He suffered, the dictionary says, from a form of tinnitus, a progressive hearing loss. The affliction was to torment him for the rest of his life. At the time I met May, he was living in a Dublin nursing home run by the Little Sisters of the Poor at Sibyl Hill in Rahini. A week after our first meeting, I turned up at the stag's head with the book and Frederick May came with an LP under his arm that had just been released by Clatter Records. He gave me the record and I gave him the book. It was a recording by the Aeolian Quartet of the string quartet that he had written in Vienna in the early 1930s, the first recording ever made of it. He did not want me to look at it for too long and became gruff when I expressed surprise and gratitude when I found out that he was the composer. His work was forgotten, he said, and now this had been released. It wasn't much, he said. He asked me to put it away when I began to read the piece by the novelist James Plunkett in the sleeve notes. We had a drink and he arranged to call at the flat during the week, by which time he would have read the book and I would have listened to the record. The music, when I put the record on, shocked me with its assurance, with its edge. May had finished it when he came back, but by the time he came back to Dublin from Vienna in 1936. He was 25 then and already knew, it seems, that he was facing progressive deafness. I was amazed by the ringing confidence of the opening of the first movement, the swirling and passionate repetitions, the pulling back, the retiring into quietness, the driven sense of anguish, hidden and then exposed and emphasised. I have the CD of the second recording made of it in 1996 by the Van Brugge Quartet. The notes say that it was more than a decade after its composition before May's Quartet came to public attention. It was an early work, according to the writer, and therefore is untainted by the increasing embitterment he felt on his later return to Ireland. There is not a single Irish sound in the whole string quartet, or maybe every sound is Irish. Maybe the unforgettable ending of the last movement, which we're going to hear, slow and plaintive, unwilling to finish, coming back again and again to a haunting melody, half-offered, withdrawn, hinted at, lifted to an extraordinary pitch of beauty. Maybe that's Irish, but I don't think so. It is too easy to make claims like that. And it may take its bearings more from the work of an English composer like Vaughan Williams. Maybe it's more true to say that the tone of helplessness and sadness in this music was enriched by May's knowledge that he was doomed by illness and that his own creative life would not be continuous. In 1958, in a broadcast, he said, I've often felt myself to be like a rock on the seashore that is covered over by the incoming tide every so often. But when the tide withdraws again, it is left once more desolate and forsaken. I imagine Frederick May living in an attic room in an old house in the centre of Vienna, having come to sup at the tilted table of Berg and Schoenberg, he was our Adrian Leverkuhn, homosexual, talented, deeply melancholy, ready to wash his bones clean of Ireland, its damp prejudices, its insularity and its misery. I imagine him too, like Vienna itself, only half aware of the danger he was in and the fate he would meet. He was forgotten before he was even remembered. After May's death in 1985, I heard a story about him that stayed in my mind. The Dictionary of Irish Biography says that May was director of the Abbey Theatre Orchestra for 15 years. And this explains the story. May's boss at the theatre, the Abbey Theatre, was Ernest Blyde, Ernand de Blyde, whose legacy as a politician, 
or a theater manager, it's hard to speak well, but he was, he was also a bully. And Bly made Frederick May's life a misery. It is easy to imagine the contempt May must have felt for the theater orchestra and the terrible plays the Abbey put on in those years. And he was drinking. Dublin was a prison. His work was not being performed. He was going deaf. And he must have been going out of his mind with other frustrations. Blyde picked on him. And Frederick May simply told everybody that he would wait and he would dance on Blyde's grave. And dance he would, he assured them all. The same dictionary says that Blyde lived until February 1975, which is close to the time when I met Frederick May. May attended Blyde's funeral. I was later told, and he stood among the mourners at the graveside, and he watched the coffin being lowered with much pomp into the ground, for Blyde had been a patriot. And then May waited. He moved among the gravestones as the others left the graveyard. He bided his time, and when the grave had been filled and the grave diggers were out of sight, and his tormentor lay well beyond tormenting him, he stood on the fresh clay, alone as light fell, and he did a dance on the grave of Ernest Blyde, as he had promised before anyone else got the chance. And then he walked down to the pub where he found company who had been at the funeral and he told them proudly of what he had done. Frederick May's string quartet, his only string quartet, has this dark passion that you usually find only in last work in Beckett's last prose pieces, for example, or some passages from Finnegan's Wake or in some of Yeats's last poems. It's hard to believe that May wrote it when he was 25. And hard to believe also that he did not know that this would be his last substantial work as well as his first. In an undated letter he wrote to the composer Brian Boydell about it. It was written at a time when I believed that my ear trouble would give me little further prospect of any creative activity and consequently I was in a state of inner tension. Of course, as you know yourself, musical themes, ideas, generate their own logic. Certainly I wasn't thinking along these lines the whole time, but that was the general basis. In any case, the old man who came up to me in the stag's head in 1975, the broken dancer with the sour wit, was responsible for one of the most exquisite contributions to Irish beauty that has ever been made. And this is the last movement of the string quartet he wrote when he was 25.